few years ago, I uh, had the privilege of going to California to speak. It's the first time I've been to California. I, I don't usually like fly around places to speak. Usually I like go down to jail, rest home, my dad's church, my brother's church, and a few other things. But this was kind of a big deal because I flew to California. It was kind of neat. So it made what happened out there kind of memorable to me. Staying in this hotel, it's a beautiful hotel, and when I was walking through the lobby, it was a beautiful, beautiful day out there in California. I was walking through the lobby, there was this amazing, beautiful smell in the lobby. And I recognized the smell. I thought, what is that smell? I realized that it was uh, a fragrance from a candle company that I recognized called Sage and Citrus. Now they tell me, I don't know if this is true or not, but they say, you know, the Yankee Candle Company has stores in the mall, and they say that they blow the fragrance out into the mall. That's what they say. I don't know if that's true or not. But I distinctly uh, recognize the fragrance of sage and citrus in the lobby of the hotel. And I thought, where is that coming from? And so I started to investigate a little bit, and lo and behold, I found behind some of the furniture in the lobby, I found a big, like, blow dryer on steroids. It was looked like that. And it was hooked to the wall, and it had, like, a uh, obviously had the sage and citrus fragrance liquid inside of it, and it was slowly blowing this fragrance throughout the lobby. It made you want to come in and stay and spend money. So we're going to get these for our lobby. No, that's, that's not the point. I'm kidding about that, although it would be kind of nice. Um, but what, we're get, what, what but it, it did was it created this wonderful fragrance. We're working our way through story after story on the Lord's Day morning in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And every one of the stories, as Matthew arranges it, and as Matthew tells the story for us, helps us to experience the fragrance of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in such a powerful way, in different ways every time, but in such powerful ways that it draws our hearts toward Him, and it makes Him so attractive to us. And that is so true with the story that we're going to tell today, a beautiful story about that has a real strange plot twist in it. If I were to tell you the elements of the story, you would go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what's going to happen in this story. Here's Jesus, here's a really sick guy, and here's those people standing out at the edge of the crowd that are always down on whatever Jesus is doing, and I know what's going to happen here. Jesus is going to heal the sick guy, and everybody's going to be amazed. But that's not exactly what happens. There's a twist in this story. Like every good story, this story has a surprise. It has a turn, if you will. Let me tell you the story. Then we'll read the story. And then after I tell you the story, and we read the story together, I want to answer the so what question. Yeah, you read a story and you go, oh, you know, it's the Bible, so obviously it's good. It's there for a reason, and we should have respect for it. But do you ever, do you ever find yourself kind of like the kid in, in, the, like in the teen group, and he's in the back row, and his arms are crossed, and he's going, so what? So what? My mom made me come today. <laughs> so what? Well, I know that our teens are more open than that. I know that you're more open than that. And you're not asking the so what question with cynicism. But don't you just really always ask that question when you hear anything from the Bible. So what? So I hear the story. 
but I got to go to work tomorrow. Or I hear the story, <laughs> but I don't get to go to work tomorrow. I, I hear the story, and, and, I, and I came to church. I, I brought my Bible. I sang the songs. I, I gave my gift, but I, you don't know, Pastor. You don't know how much pain is in my soul today. You don't know how messed up my life is. You don't know how damaged I am. You don't know how painful it is in my family. You don't know the unanswered questions that hang over my head like a sword. So what? So what? You're going to ask, answer the so what question with three different answers today. So that's what we're up to today. Here we have it. Jesus now is, gets back in the boat. He comes back from the region of the Decapolis, and he comes back to what now he calls his town. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Because it's Capernaum they're talking about, but Jesus' hometown was Nazareth. But Nazareth has rejected Jesus, and Jesus has now adopted a new hometown. Peter lives in Capernaum. Some people think that Jesus may have lodged with Peter, but Jesus now is calling Capernaum his hometown. It's just a little village. You remember we got to visit there. Remember, it's the, the place where Peter's house has a spaceship-like church over the top of it. Remember me telling you that? It, it didn't then, but it, it does now. Someday I, I'm, I'm thinking they're going to change that. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that some other time. Nonetheless, here's this little village nestled really on the kind of north and west shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. Now, when he left, he'd been casting out demons. He'd been healing people. So when he came back, there was a crowd. And... Uh, in the crowd were people that had so many needs that they pressed in around him. He went into a house. According to the other versions of the story, in other Gospels, there was a man that was brought to him. This man was paralyzed. He was on a pallet or a bed or a mat of some kind. They couldn't get him to Jesus. According to the other Gospel accounts, you remember how the story goes. They actually removed tiles from the roof and let this guy down through the roof so that Jesus could see him. That would have been a spectacle. So here you get the picture. Four guys carrying one guy who's paralyzed, who comes down through the roof. Now what is Jesus going to do? It's kind of interesting because here's how the story goes. Jesus looks at him and he says, Son, he uses a term of endearment, Son. A very precious term of endearment, Son. Be of good cheer. Or, in other words, you don't have anything to worry about. It's kind of what he's saying. And then he says something, and here's the turn. He says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, to me, that would seem odd. To us, in our culture, it would seem odd. I came to the emergency room. I didn't come to talk about my guilt. I came to the emergency room. I'm bleeding here. I didn't come to talk about my sins. I came to talk about my sickness. I can't move. They let him down through the roof because he was paralyzed and Jesus was the healer. But Jesus says to him, cheer up. It's all good because your sins are forgiven. Now at this point, out on the edge of the crowd are these religious types. They're the big game in town. You know, they're the ones that decide who gets forgiven, who doesn't get forgiven. They got laws for this. They got rules. They got books. Hey, we'll let you know who gets forgiven here. You get, on our, you get in our deal, we'll, get, we'll give you a little forgiveness here. But here's Jesus saying, I forgive you. And out on the edge of the crowd, the scribes, the Pharisees are going, blasphemy. Maybe they kind of murmured it among themselves. Maybe it was just in their brain, blasphemy. 
And then another kind of surprising thing happens. Jesus knows their thoughts. Now, man, their thoughts may have been obvious. I mean, I don't think these guys were all that subtle, really. They're out there on the edge. Hmm, I don't know about this. I mean, he's only like, like healing people and casting out demons. I can understand why they would have a question about that, right? He's healing people and he's casting out demons. Do you guys see this happen regularly? Is it just me? I, don't, I think this is fairly uncommon. So he, in, in, in large numbers, he's healing people and he's casting out demons and he's making blind people see and lame people walk. And they can't figure out if that's a good thing. Because he's not doing it with their brand on him. So they're sitting around going, hmm, he doesn't have our brand. This must not be a good thing. Are you serious? So they're around there doing that, edge of the crowd, skeptical, cynical, questioning, calling Jesus, who is God, a blasphemer, because he has the audacity to say to this guy, I forgive you. Jesus calls them out, knowing their thoughts. And he speaks directly to them and says to them directly in front of all the other people, why do you have evil thoughts in your heart? Why do you have evil thoughts in your heart? Then Jesus does what Jesus does a lot. Jesus teaches by asking questions. Wish I was better at this. Instead of him just saying things directly, he asks a question. Question. Is it easier to say, I forgive you? Or is it easier to say, take up your bed and walk? Now let's talk about the question Jesus didn't ask first. Jesus didn't say, is it easier to forgive or easier to heal? Both of those are impossible for men. To forgive is the prerogative of God. And a miraculous healing is, I think, above all of our pay grades. Would you agree? But Jesus asked the question, which is easier to say And I think the answer is, it's easier to say, I forgive you, than it is to say, you're healed. And why would that be? Because if he says, I forgive you, people can't really tell if he's forgiven. But if he says, take off your bed and walk, and the guy can't walk, then everybody knows it. And so Jesus says, the deal here is, do I have the authority to forgive sins? And to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, watch this little trick. Get up and walk, go home. And the guy gets up takes his little bed, and he doesn't go out to the roof. <laughs> he walks away. And, and the, the neat thing is in the story, the crowd is like in awe, and, and they glorify God. They're like, whoa, they're in awe. They're afraid. They glorify God. But the Pharisees, the religious guys, they don't say anything. They haven't done, <laughs> they haven't done anything. They haven't, made, they haven't even made any promises. All they did was accuse God of blasphemy. That's all they did. They didn't understand anybody. <laughs> they didn't heal anybody. They didn't help anybody. They didn't say anything when Jesus had healed this man, and he walks away. That's the story. Let's read that story now in the very words of the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 9, and verses 1 through 8. And so he got into a boat, crossed over and came into his own city, And then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, at once, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Quite a story, isn't it? So what? So what? Well, it's a great story. But why is it that God would have his preachers, his faithful preachers, preach that part of the Word of God to people who live like you and I live, where you and I live, and deal with what you and I are dealing with? So, so what? I want to answer the so what question with, with three answers. Number one, only Jesus has the heart to know you. Only Jesus has the heart to know you. Only Jesus knows you. you the, the story's cool, because in two places, it's obvious Jesus knows things no human being could ever know. You could guess at them, but he knows that the paralytic's main need is what? Forgiveness. His obvious need is healing. His obvious need would scream so loud that most of us would, would really not notice his real need. We would say, the guy can't even move. He's a paralytic. His friends, they've, they've taken pity on him. They've, they're desperate. They're getting him to Jesus. It's his last hope. He says, your sins are forgiven you. Only Jesus has a heart that knows what it is we need. We don't even know what it is we need. We might think we need money. Jesus might say, no, you need forgiveness more than you need money. You might say, what I need most is a job. Things would be cool if I had a job. He'd say, no, you need to be right with me. That's more important than a job. What I need is the right fill in the blank. Ten grand more a year would work for me. Maybe if I had, uh, had made a different choice about this wife or, or about this lousy husband of mine or if we'd have done something different with these kids and they're all doing this or that. That's, Jesus can look past all of that stuff that gets us confused and he knows exactly what it is we need and only he knows. Religious guys didn't have an answer for that. They didn't know, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the young man needed forgiveness. Jesus knew that the guys who looked religious really weren't. He knew that the guys that looked good had evil thoughts. That's interesting. Sometimes people that look bad are really good. And sometimes people that look bad, good are, are really bad. Who knows? You say, I know. I have super ability to know. There are a lot of people who really feel that way. And I'll admit, some people are more gifted at others than, than knowing. You know, there are gullible types, and there are people that have sharp powers of discernment. But my, my friend, listen, only the Lord knows what's going on in people's hearts. Only God knows what's going on in your heart. You only think you know what's going on in your heart. But Jesus, He is the one. He only is the one who has the heart to know what it is that you need so he can give you what it is that what only he knows you need. It is interesting in the Bible, if you study, someone has said there are maybe different reasons for sickness in the Bible. Sometimes you get sick, and the purpose of your sickness, this is not going to be really encouraging for some of us, is you're going to die. I knew you were going to say that. You're giving me the look like, yeah, 
right? I mean, we're all going to die someday unless the rapture happens first. And there will come a day when the sickness is unto death, right? And then the Lord will give a believer dying grace. And I've seen it happen over and over. You just go by the bedside and they're suffering and they're like, I'm ready to go be the Lord. I'm eager to go be the Lord. Family members all gather around. Family members are weeping. Family members are remembering. Family members are hurting. Person in the bed, dying grace. Dying grace. Time to go be the Lord. It's not that you cease existence. You go be with the Lord. Peter Marshall, chaplain of the Senate, pastor of the New York Street Presbyterian Church years ago during World War II, was called upon to speak at Annapolis, the Naval Academy. What he didn't realize is the day he would speak on that Sunday, there would be a terrible attack on America. Before that happened, he was moved on his spirit. His spirit was moved to speak, to change the topic and to speak on death. And so he is before all these young cadets in the prime of their life. What they don't know is in the next few months, many of them would go out into eternity because many of them would die in World War II. God moved upon his heart to speak on death. Peter Marshall tells this story in the message, beautifully recounted in the, the movie written about his life called A Man Called Peter. A long stretch. When they made the movie, they weren't going to include long preachments in the movie. But this was so powerful. There's a long section where the actor preaches like Peter Marshall in a Scottish brogue. And he tells this story. Death to a believer. It's like when you are a little child and you fall asleep downstairs. And in, instead of your parents waking you up, they pick you up. And they carry you upstairs while you're sleeping. And in the morning you wake up and you don't remember the trip but you know you're in your own bed. And for a believer, that's what it's like to die. To be from where we were here. To be, be alive in a place called home where we've never been before with a person we love who we've never seen before. And so when a believer dies, sometimes God gives a person a sickness that's done to death and he gives them a dying grace. And if you're not a believer, that'd be a great reason for you to get saved so that when it comes your turn to die, you don't leave any question marks with your family members or the pastor who preaches your funeral. You say, everybody who knows you can say, that person had the grace of God on their life. They had dying grace. And you know, and I know, I've been here long enough. We have folk that used to sit here in a balcony and down here. They're with the Lord now. And we watched them die, didn't we? And we just listened, and we heard them tell their stories of intimacy with Jesus, the dying grace that he gave them. You need to have dying grace one day. May God give you that. But then God may allow some of us to be sick, and it will be his way of gently reminding us that we have violated his law. And that's sickness, that's chastisement. And the Bible talks about sickness because of chastisement. And whenever we have difficulty in our lives, whenever we have sickness or anything that comes in, one of the first things that we ought to do is go along with the Lord and say, is my life pleasing to you? Is, have my words been pleasing to you? Is my behavior pleasing to you? Have I violated your word? And in any way that you are not right with the Lord or with others, then you should immediately make it right, continuously keeping your heart sweet and your life right between you and everyone and you and the Lord so that God doesn't have to use sickness that chastise you because he loves you that much. And then there are other times when people are sick and they're not going to die. And it's not because they sinned. Like Job, for instance, or, or the man born blind in the Gospel of John. And this was just because God was going to use that sickness to glorify himself. Now whenever there's sickness in a fallen world, the sickness is because of the sin that, that's broken, this fallen world. But not necessarily our personal sin. It may be that God is allowing a person to suffer for the glory of God. Jesus suffered, not because he sinned, but because God would be glorified in his suffering. And some of you have been called upon to suffer. 
in different ways. It may be sickness or other things. And you examine your heart and you know you're right with the Lord. And you're not going to die, not yet. But God is saying, this is the way I want you to glorify me. This is the way I want you to show other people that whether things are good for you or bad for you, that I am still God and that you still love me and that you cherish me. And that is a powerful witness. That is a powerful testimony for a person to watch their son hurt or their, their husband die or to go through cancer or, 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 or somebody suffer and still to retain their faith in Jesus Christ and still to say, yet I will trust him like Job did. That's a powerful thing and God can give you grace for that. So sickness may come along because... God's going to take you home. Sickness may come along because you're not right with the Lord. Or sickness may come along, though you are right with the Lord and you're not going to die, in order that God would be glorified in your life. But only one who really knows that instantly and immediately is our Savior, Jesus. He knows why whatever happens in our life happens. And only He knows, so that's the so what answer. Only Jesus has a heart to know. It was in Kentucky. You got this little singing on the square in Kentucky. And over here was Mark's Mountain Barbecue on a trailer. You ever notice every message, we got food in it. I'm just sorry. That's the way I roll, you know. So here's this trailer. It's really cool. It's like a little cabin on wheels. And it's called Mark's Mountain Barbecue. And my goodness, you know how barbecue is. It's like, oh, it smells so good. So I might kind of wander over there to the barbecue, you know, because I don't want to make the guy feel bad, you know, over alone over there and, you know, selling barbecue. And I was like, well, I'll buy a few things. I said, and I always ask the barbecue people this question, do you have brisket? That's what I always say. And then they always get kind of a, their chest goes out and they said, do I have brisket? I have the finest brisket in the mountains. You ought to try my brisket. I go, okay, well, I don't know. I've had a lot of brisket and I'm not sure yours is the best. I'll try it. So Mark puts brisket on. He, he sees I'm a big guy, so you can tell he's being very generous with the portions. And he gives me this brisket sandwich. I get one for the boys and, and, and the girls. And so we all have one. We eat it. I'm like, he's like, he looks me in the eye. He says, what'd you think? I'm like, it was amazing. And he goes, you got to try my ribs. It was close to evening and close to closing time. And so the guy just thought, because I'd kind of bought a lot because of the you know, big family. He goes, here, here, let me give you some of my ribs. you got to try them. And he goes over and he just forks out these ribs, just this big serving of ribs on a big thing. And he says, here, it's my gift to you. And, hey, try that with ALA. they got this ginger ale stuff down there in the mountains. It's just awesome stuff. Gives me this. Kelly's walking home. Lois's Uncle Kelly. He's walking home. He's salivating over my ribs. You know, I'm like, you like my ribs? Look at it. He goes, yeah. I said, let's share. And so he had some of my ribs. It was just wonderful. Now, friends, I, I use that illustration because of this. Our delivery of the truth, of the gospel, is, smells as sweet as barbecue here in the house. But there are a lot of people who need it who aren't going to come here to get it. we got to put this thing on wheels. And we got to go to where people are. I'm talking about where you work. You're going, you go, I love church, but I hate going to work on Monday morning because the people there don't know the Lord. And, you know, we sing about Jesus and nobody cusses, nobody tells filthy jokes, nobody talks about the drunkenness and the carrot or crowds and whatever. But then on Monday, i got to go, and those people there are, why, God, do I have to go? He goes, wait a minute, that's meals on wheels, man. You're taking the stuff to the people who need it. They don't even know what they need. They think they need another drink. They think they need another wife. They think they need more money. They need Jesus. 
You know they need Jesus. Jesus knows that they need him, but they don't know. So we got to get to him. So God's going to put you in some uncomfortable places. He's going to put you in a neighborhood. He's going to teach you to be a soul winner. He's going to have you have a small group in your home or, or a little Bible study. And you're going to take the barbecue to the people. It's going to be meals on. We're going to have to do that more and more. Because more and more people who don't know the Lord don't know that they're supposed to come here and get it. We're going to have to go and every once in a while, a guy will do something that will throw us off, like a guy standing here with a sign going, I want some money. And we're like, I was going to go to church today. And now i got this little troublesome thing of somebody who asked for money. Does it make anybody else uncomfortable here? It's a little interesting. It's thought-provoking, isn't it? And we want to help people here, don't we? If anybody has a need, we don't want to help them. Help them the right way and so forth. But I think the Lord, he allows us to just every once in a while see something that's just painful to see. That's hard to, hard to process, hard to understand. And we can say to that person, I'm really not sure what it is that you need specifically. But I can tell you that it's Jesus. I do know that you need the Lord. And though we may help to heal or feed or encourage, ultimately, what is it? Only Jesus knows. What, we, what it is that we need. Only he has a heart to know what we need. Second answer to the question, so what? Number one answer, only Jesus knows. Only Jesus has the heart to know you. Answer number two, only Jesus has the authority to forgive you. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive you. That's what this whole story is about. They're going to bicker in their hearts over whether Jesus has the authority to forgive. They want a franchise on that. The religious people want a franchise on who gets to forgive. You've got to go through our hocus-pocus to get forgiven. You've got, to do, you've got to know when to do this or when to do that or what class to take or what religious paraphernalia to buy or what religious shenanigans to go through. And then maybe we'll kind of like, well, you might be forgiven. That's not the gospel. That's not what we do here at Evangel or any other gospel preaching church. We tell about Jesus Christ, who is the only one. The religions all around the world have one thing in common. There are all ways to work your way into a position where God may forgive you. Christianity, completely different than that. Jesus Christ, God's Son, doesn't need forgiveness. Never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. He never sinned in thought or in word or in deed or in attitude. He's perfectly pure and perfectly righteous and He died for our sins. He came and shed His blood. You're not tired of this story, are you? He came and He shed His blood for our sins. He was buried and He rose again to, tell, to show the world the story is true and to conquer death and Satan and hell. And anyone, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how ashamed they are, no matter how broken they are, no matter how messed up they are, no matter how filthy their background is, they come to Jesus and He's the one and the only one who has the authority to say, You are forgiven. I think that's pretty cool. You have the authority in Jesus' name to tell that story to people whose lives are just burdened by guilt and by shame and by sin, and they don't even have a clue. They don't even understand that. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, and He sends us out as agents to tell people about Him. (laughs) He'll keep us busy until He comes back doing things for people so that they will see who Jesus is. So in the Jesus versus religion, and religious guys, they're always off in the shadows, trading sideways glances, murmuring their little religious criticisms, harboring their evil thoughts in their hearts, 
All religions have always done this. Only Christianity teaches us how to be finally, fully, and freely forgiven. Religion, moral reformation, personal determination, legal regulation, even fueling your own remorse cannot do what only Jesus can do. You do not come to church to try to be a better person. You do not come to church to try to look around at the other nice people and try to be the nice people that they look on the outside like they are. If you come to church and you get to know us better, you'll realize we're all messed up without Jesus. That would have been the, that's the amen part you missed, you know. So everybody feels comfortable. Is this not true? Is anybody here that wasn't totally broken beyond repair before Jesus Christ came into your life? Is there anybody here that can say, you know what church is for me? I'm a pretty good guy. And I come to church so that I'm inspired to be just a little bit better so that the other people can see what a good person is like. That's what people think religion is. That is not what the message of the gospel is. The message of the gospel is this is where broken sinners, hopeless sinners come, throw themselves for mercy on Jesus. He forgives them, fills them with His Holy Spirit. By the power of His Holy Spirit, He gives them the ability to do things they never thought they could do, including it maybe instantly or maybe progressively knocking off the things that you know that are self-destructive and that aren't pleasing to the Lord. But you see what I mean? You don't stop drinking, stop smoking, stop going to bad shows and stuff so that Jesus will say, okay, you're in because you don't do that bad stuff. You receive Jesus as your Savior. He puts, a new, he puts new guts in you. He puts a new heart in you. And then you're like, you know what? I don't really like those filthy, profane things I used to like. I don't really even need to go get drunk anymore. I'm feeling that a, a sense of joy that I never had before. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the way it works when a person comes to faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit fills that person. Only Jesus has the heart to know you. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive you. And only Jesus has the power to heal whatever is broken in you. That's the third answer to the question. Only Jesus has the heart to know you. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive you. And only Jesus has the power to heal you. We said we're all broken. We're all paralyzed in some way. And sometimes we have sympathetic friends that drag us to Jesus. And then Jesus looks on our faith. Five guys with faith. Four guys carrying the one guy. Jesus looks at them and he says, bless their hearts. Look at them. They're messed up. <laughs> this guy's paralyzed. They're all sinners. And yet they, they've come to the right person. And I see that they have faith. And therefore, I'm going to forgive their sin. And then he also heals. Only Jesus has that power to heal. There's a brokenness in all of us. There's a brokenness of this fallen world. That's touched every one of us. I feel that keenly every single day of my life. Don't you? There's a brokenness there. Then it's going to continue to affect us until one day when God burns the curse of sin out of this world and heaven comes down to earth to rest on a restored earth and the sin curse is overcome and reversed by Jesus Christ. Until that time, we're still going to struggle, even in our churches and in our families and where we work. It's just going to be a struggle because we're broken sinners. That's why. Now, these people were amazed that God had imparted such power to one who was a member of the human race Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive sin. And that's what Matthew and the Holy Spirit in writing this part of this book is saying to us. He just keeps taking Jesus like a beautiful diamond and turning him so we see different facets of who Jesus is, including his ability, in this case, and his ability to know people, his authority to forgive people, 
and his power to fix people who are broken. I heard about a pastor, bivocational pastor, and he worked, he, he pastored a little church, but then he also worked in a boy's home. Now the boy's home was for, I guess you could call them wayward boys. It was a remedial place. It was a residential facility. So he had boys there that were pretty rough. They had been messed up in a lot of ways. They were not, they were, uh, they were, they had, they had done illegal things, and so they were assigned to this home. But most of the boys had real good reasons to be messed up because they had been physically, sexually, emotionally abused in places where they should have been loved. This guy, because he was a bivocational pastor on Saturday nights, he had this he had this tradition, he had this habit that he would go to the dining room table and he'd open his Bible and he'd open his notes so that he would study for his message. It was interesting because after a while, one of the boys came to the table and would set, and he had a little gift that he'd give them. If they were interested, he would give them a little keychain. It was a cross, a wooden cross. He'd give it to them as a gift. It'd be a part of his little Bible study. He would try his message out on the boys. After a while, another boy, and then another, and then another. There were six or eight boys that would come in every Saturday night. They would sit around the table. He would try his message out on them. They would listen carefully. They would turn their pages of their Bible, and each one of them had a little wooden cross. There was one boy who never came, though. His name was Eric. And this boy was a tough nut. He was hard. He wouldn't, he, he wouldn't show his emotions. You couldn't get next to him. He wouldn't come to the table. But he did start to come in the room, and he would sit across the room, but he would act like he wasn't listening. And over and over again, they would say, Eric, come on over, buddy. Come to the table. You can sit here at the table. You can be a part of our Bible study. He would like, no, no, no. And he did his time. Six months, nine months, when he was done, he called for the pastor to come to his room. And the pastor thought, well, this must be his private way of saying goodbye to me. So the pastor went to his room, and the boy went over, and he, he lifted up the covers on his bed, and he reached inside, and he, he, he took out a wooden cross. It was a wooden cross that he had made with his own hands. Because you see, when the other boys would get their cross, they would often break them and throw them away, and the pastor would replace them with a new cross. But Eric just quietly went around, and he gathered all the pieces of the broken crosses, and he glued them all together into one beautiful cross. And before he left, he gave it to the pastor. And then with uh, simple language, he said, this is what Jesus has done for me. He took the broken pieces of my life and made something beautiful. 